Hello, I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. And I'd like to welcome you back to the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover Fellows and friends together to discuss their latest writings. Our guest today is Terry Lee Anderson. He is the Hoover Institution's John and Jean Deneau Senior Fellow. He is a past president of the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, and a very distinguished professor emeritus at Montana State University. Terry Anderson joins us today to discuss his latest book, a book he co-authored. The title is Renewing Indigenous Economy. Terry, thanks for taking part in the book club. Oh, my pleasure. Good to, good to see you, Bill. So we're going to spend a couple minutes talking about you, my friend, and that's going to include that backdrop behind you, which is going to tell people that you're not in Palo Alto, California with me. You're somewhere out west. And this is what I'd like to get out of you, Terry. Um, a lot of fellows at the Hoover Institution go to Montana but they drop by Montana, they drop into ski, they drop into fish in the summertime or just kind of enjoy the, the great outdoors. But you, my friend, are actually a Montanan. You're arguably Hoover Institution's most Western fellow, if you will. So tell us a bit about how you came to be in Montana, about what the Montana existence means to you. I came to be in Montana because this is where I was born. Okay. I was born and raised in a small town, a thousand people in South Central Montana, a mm -hmm. uh, high school of 100 students, a class of 20. And because a smart girl moved away, I was number one, which made me the top 5% of my class. Uh, when I uh, left the state and went to graduate school at the University of Washington, I had an opportunity to come back and teach here and I knew my roots were here and, and it's where I wanted to live. And as the backdrop suggests, I hunt, I fish, I hike, I ski, I horseback ride. Uh, I love what Montana has to offer most of the year, but then I get to be at the intellectual uh, uh, cornucopia at Hoover. So that, that adds to it. Growing up in Montana, uh, the little town I grew up in uh, was next to the Crow Indian Reservation. Mm -hmm. And then add to that the fact that my uncle was the foreman of a very large ranch that was on the Blackfeet Reservation. Now that might make you wonder, well, how can it be a ranch on a reservation? Right. It was only later that I come, came to sort of ask that question myself. But I grew up around American Indians uh, in school, played against them in sports. Uh, lived on that ranch. My hero on that ranch was Francis Calf Looking. He was my cowboy hero because he taught me to ride horses, to move cows, uh, and was just, again, this this idol to me. All right. So we talk about the West today, Terry. Is it the endangered West, the threatened West, the changing West? How would, how would you describe it? Well, uh, certainly Montana is, uh, is changing. I, Locals like myself, uh, natives would probably say is threatened. Uh, CNBC just ran a story uh, explaining what the movie, uh, the, the television series Yellowstone has done to Montana and particularly has done to Bozeman. Uh, I, I, anywhere I go, people, when they hear I'm from Montana, oh, do you watch Yellowstone? And I say, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't capture the reality of Montana, for one thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, is, it, it presents a culture that just never did exist. And, and if the culture they're trying to promote did exist, it's being changed so quickly before my eyes that it, it's... Uh, it, it, to me, it, it is endangered, but I, I, it's a free country and people should live where they want to. And I don't blame them for moving here. It's a beautiful spot. And still by standards of, of crowding and, and uh, the, 
benefits of the outdoors, it's still the last best place. Right. And uh, Montana actually votes the same day that California does. And I noticed that you have an extra congressional district now, which I believe is in Bozeman. So this would be the, the population gain, right? Exactly. We had, had dropped to uh, one congressman. There were times when I thought it would have been better if we had zero, but you know, uh, I don't think you ever get to there. But uh, right. So we dropped to one. Partly what I was just describing has led to enough population resurgent. We're now over 1.1 million, a small number for most people in the world, but uh, grew, grew enough to, to warrant a, a second congressman. And uh, so that's, uh, that is in my part of the state. And uh, I can almost undoubtedly say it'll be a close race because you're going to have everywhere to the east of Bozeman, Montana, that's going to be fairly conservative. And you're going to have Bozeman, Montana and other uh, Helena, uh, which are very, very liberal. Our governor is very conservative, Greg Gianforte, good friend. Uh, he didn't carry Bozeman, his hometown. Right, which means one thing, Terry, Eastern Reporter is going to come out and cover that race, which means Easterners are going to read about Montana, and they're going to come flocking out in numbers. So you, my friend, live in something of a vicious cycle, I would argue. <laughs> yes, but I just bought a second home that is about as far away from anywhere as you can get. So There you go. I so let's talk free. So let's talk, Terry, about your interest in the Native American existence. And you mentioned that this begins with something of an accident of geography, that you grew up next to a reservation. Talk a bit, Terry, about how you make the transition from the fascination with the culture to wanting to pursue it from a policy standpoint. This all started, <laughs> that part of it really started in, uh, I believe it was 1976. A Swiss family came to visit. Uh, they wanted to be here during the centennial of the of the Custer Battle, the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Uh, and they knew a woman who lived on the Flathead Reservation, a Swiss woman married to a member of the Salish Kootenai Confederated Tribes. I took them to visit there. And en route, I tried to explain to these Swiss, very wealthy, sort of the European noble savage view of American Indians as depicted by the artist Carl Bodmer, a Swiss artist. Right. And I tried to explain the poverty they were likely to see. And we drove up to this house, it's a beautiful home, back set with the uh, Mission Mountains, cattle grazing in, their, in the grass up to their bellies, a nice car in the driveway. We went into the living room, a library. It was everything <laughs> that was completely the antithesis of what I had described. And uh, as we got to know the, the tribal member owner, I said to him, uh, how do you explain this? And he looked at me rather puzzled and said, uh, I own this place. And I said, yeah, but we're on the reservation. Doesn't it belong to the tribe? He repeated, I own this place. And I did another, yeah, but, and he said, I own this place. And I said, you mean like I own my house? And he said, yes, it was my first uh, inkling that any reservation land could be privately owned, fee simple, like you own your house. Right. And I immediately said, this has to fit into some part of the explanation of why poverty exists, because the rest of the land that isn't fee simple is held in trust by the federal government. And so immediately that launched my research into this, uh, into the inter interface between uh, the politics of Washington and the reality of a reservation. All right. Let's talk about Terry about uh, the project you run at Hoover. The Hoover project are renewing indigenous economies. This, I assume, was your idea. And what brought this to fruition? 
Well, before I take full credit for the idea, I, I have to emphasize that between the event that I described mm -hmm. seconds ago uh, and now, mm -hmm. I got to know tribal leaders, I got to know right. tribal scholars, and uh, in particular, a group of First Nations from Canada, a, a, a group of Maori from New Zealand, myself and some other tribal leaders from the U.S., attended a conference in British Columbia in, in Vancouver. And at the end of that, we all sat in a room visiting about, so where does all this go? And right. we decided that it was time to try to resurrect uh, or create really an alliance of people interested in renewing indigenous economies. And then to resurrect the renewing part, because most people don't understand the history of Native Americans or First Nations or Maori. Mm -hmm. The idea that most people think of comes from movies and the Wild West, the Wild Indian, that these are people who didn't understand property rights, who didn't understand trade. And as I and other scholars in this group delved into it, what we found was that prior to European mm -hmm. contact, the American Indians, that's my specialty, uh, understood trade. They understood governance. They had rules of law, not written, but neither is the British Constitution. Uh, and, and that led me to think, you know, we could, we could build a project at Hoover that first laid the basis for understanding what renewing meant, and then, then asked what what can tribes do with this information? Not what can we tell them to do, but what can tribal leaders do to, to renew their economies that once flourished rather than just uh, were starvation uh, nomads on the land? Okay. Uh, Terry, I want to uh, read back to you something you wrote in December of 2017 for Hoover's Defining Ideas web channel. And here's what you wrote, quote, what we are observing in North America's indigenous communities has been called a renaissance in tribal self-governance and an economic civil rights movement. Put another way, the devolution of power from the feds to tribes is an experiment in federalism and decentralization, one that appears to be working. That was December 2017, Terry. That was before COVID, the current economic uh, uh, conditions we face now, possibly a recession, inflation, and so forth. How would you update that passage to uh, summer of 2022? I wish I could update it by saying that the progress that I described there has, has uh, taken an exponential path. But I, mm -hmm. I, I really don't think COVID helped uh, uh, <laughs> accelerate that path for sure. Right. For one thing, uh, tribes, partly because of their poverty, uh, really faced uh, faced uh, more than most societies and most segments of American America's population the reality of COVID, and they shut down. And so, whatever ever economies they have got shut down. They they had to keep people from going in and keep people from going out. Right. Uh, because of many of the other social ills on reservations and the poverty, they were a very susceptible group of people. Uh, and so it really meant that, that try well, and then add to that the fact that some of the tribal uh, growth has, has been a response to uh, gaming. They shut down casinos. So virtually every aspect of production on, on reservations uh, declined more than we, we see in most other segments of the American population. So that, that uh, growth has not, has not continued the way I might have hoped. 
that said, I, I think that more and more tribes are beginning to understand the importance of self-governance, the importance of their own sovereignty, and the importance of, I, I like to put it in these words, because I think this, this, these words from a tribal leader capture it. We need to understand getting away from grants and moving to revenues. And I think that's the resurgence that's occurring, and it'll be the answer to uh, the question of how can we renew indigenous economies? Uh, true so or false? Let me add, let me right. change. How can they renew indigenous economies? It, because this is not the Hoover Institution or Terry Anderson marching out to a reservation uh, and saying, here's what you need to do. It's a matter of them accepting, understanding their past and, and moving forward as they see fit. That's what sovereignty is about. True or false, Terry, about at least about one in five Native Americans live on reservations. Uh, that's probably, uh, wait, one on five live on, on five. I, yeah. I think that's about right. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the number exactly. So what population are we talking about? And within that population, Terry, do you have data on how it skews? Is it young? Is it old? Is it male? Is it female? Do, in other words, how would a reservation differ from the American population? Uh, first, it would be old. Uh, mm -hmm. The male-female wouldn't be any necessarily much different. Uh, would have a young cohort, but the as in as in Montana uh, prior to the recent resurgence, uh, it was a young mobile uh, group who said we want something better and we can't get it here on the reservation and they moved out. So it's it's typically much a much older generation than I think you find in most places. Palo Alto, for example. Uh, but uh, but I think it, it's it's uh, an indication that the the, the, the socioeconomic uh, picture that you get on reservation is an indication of just what happens when when economies stagnate and what happens when they're colonized as ours have been. Uh, there isn't there, there's hardly even individual sovereignty. Let me, let me interject right now. I, I, I have another piece that uh, Hoover just published. Uh, my co-author Kathy Rattay and I wrote, and it starts out saying, imagine a country where the federal government dictates that people are incompetent and incapable until the government deems them to be competent and capable. Those words sound, you couldn't possibly mean the United States. And yet that is the way the federal government uh, describes American Indians in the law, a law passed in uh, first in 1887, then later renewed in, a, in an even more strict version in 1906, I believe, that says until they're deemed competent and capable, they can't own land, they can't own assets. That just seems unfathomable in a free country like the United States, but it is part and parcel of, of what has created this, this microcosm of islands of poverty in the sea of wealth. And how would you qualify somebody as competent and capable, how would you measure that? Well, in the early days, it was measured by a, a, a Bureau of Indian Affairs agent who lived on the reservation and in general was approached by some non-Indian who wanted to buy the land that had been allotted to the Indian and they couldn't sell the land unless they were deemed competent and capable so they could own it in fee simple, back to the earlier statements. And if the agent said you're competent and capable, you were, he gave you title to your land and you sold it to the non-Indian. 
Now you can imagine that reservations don't want to return to that. Reservations as a result of that, the actual, uh, the, the outside dimensions of the reservation didn't change, but the amount that was actually owned by either the tribe or individual Indians in trust declined dramatically as a result of that. So even to this day, uh, it would require the federal government, the Bureau of Indian Affairs to declare someone competent and capable. That doesn't happen very often because there's not much move towards moving this land out of trusteeship, which is, is the basis for competence and, capa and capability. Let's talk about life inside the indigenous community, Terry. And you referenced earlier that tribes, nations had a tradition of economic thriving, that they're industrious, that they're entrepreneurial. Why does that not carry into the reservation existence? Is it as simple as just being penned in and corralled? Or is there a more conservative answer that the federal government has way too heavy a hand in, in this? Probably won't, my answer won't surprise you. It, it, they're not really uh, corralled in the sense that, that they, uh, uh, Blacks were in, in the apartheid South Africa. Right. Uh, they can move around if they so desire, but you know, just for any of us, that means you're going to move out of the place you love. We talked about the Montana that I love. You're going to move away from the family you love. You're going to move out of the culture that you know. So it's it. They're not corralled in the in some uh, you know, fenced sense, but but corralled by these constraints. Uh, so it, it's really the 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 heavy hand of the federal government that dictates what can be done on trust land that that determines uh, just how much tribes can either thrive or hopefully survive. Let me give give a couple of examples where tribes have have taken control. It's taken some cases special legislation, in some cases just um, agreements with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but I'll give you two. I mentioned the Flathead Reservation here in Montana in the context of my Swiss friends. That reservation now has total control of the tribe's uh, forests. Those forests sit right next to the Lolo National Forest, so the one that all of the citizens of this country have a share in. The tribe has control. The federal government has control on its lands. The federal government earns 98 cents for every dollar it spends on timber management. The tribe earns $2 for every dollar it spends. It has better quality water, better quality wildlife, better age, species, distribution of trees, you name it, it's better. And it's because they have a stake in the game. They right. back, I own this place. They own this place. Uh, another example comes from the Southern Ute in, on the Southern border of Colorado. Right. They have huge oil and gas reserves. They managed to get control of those reserves from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So that it was up to them whether they drilled or, uh, and, and pumped. It was up to them to decide how they did it and they've done it very in very environmentally sound ways. They, then they took the proceeds and they reinvested. They owned buildings in Houston, oil wells in the Gulf, uh, all kinds of other assets. And they've taken back to that word revenue and reinvested it in, in their reservation. They have great roads, they have great schools, they have great healthcare, all because they have turned away from grants toward revenue and have become a sovereign nation. And one of the tribal leaders says, we, are, we have gained sovereignty 
one barrel at a time. And I think that phrase kind of captures what, what's required. Give them control of their resources and let them flourish. And they will. They are entrepreneurial. There's one more I'd like to explain, Terry, and that is in Nebraska, the Winnebago tribe, which initially got involved in casino gambling to generate uh, an influx of capital for its nation. Well, it's another example of, of an asset that they didn't have before, gaming, uh, due to the Federal uh, Indian Gaming Act, I think it's called, I can't remember. Uh, due to that act, tribes can, can engage in compacts with the state to have gaming. In Montana, they've done that. But I can tell you, Montana tribes are not getting rich off of gaming because there's just no one to come and game. Right. Uh, in California, the freeways and through Indian-owned lands have, have these very valuable casinos, as, uh, as was true for the Winnebago. Right. Again, the Winnebago didn't just say, well, let's just let this goose keep laying golden eggs. Let's reinvest those golden eggs into other things. And, and because of, of a separate uh, tribal corporation that invests the money and is held accountable through the profits it makes, they run like a, a, a well-oiled machine. And that business, that machine generates revenue for the tribe. And once again, they've lifted themselves out of poverty without the federal government's help. Let's talk about the uh, gaming situation for a moment, Terry. I'm in California. And during our primary, a really interesting thing happened. A lot of advertising for candidates. But then throughout the uh, course lead up to the primary, you saw ads featuring Native Americans and what they were upset about, what they were up in arms about. Nothing on the June ballot in California. They're looking at November, Terry. And there's a very contentious ballot measure coming California's way, one that will allow online gaming. And the tribes obviously feel, feel very threatened by this. So they're spending money as far ahead as in June. You don't do this in California, Terry, unless one thing, you have a lot of money to burn. So put that in the context of California gaming and the tribal existence, because this has always been a question. I've, I've worked in California politics 25 years ago. Uh, even then, I, I worked with the governor who was involved in, in uh, compacts with tribes over gaming. There's always a question about what you do with the revenue. I, a very interesting example of, of what has happened in the in the more uh, lucrative gaming states like California. Right. Those tribes start making money. They had uh, a, a corner on the market with the gaming compacts in most cases, not Nevada, of course, but mm -hmm. uh, in places like Colorado, Louisiana, I could come back and talk about a very successful tribe there. Uh, just note that's the Cushata tribe. They're now the third largest private employer in Louisiana because they've taken their profits and reinvested them. Mm -hmm. But anytime there is money on the table, politicians want to cut. Right. And that means that, that the politicians in state government are going to look for ways to get more. And one of the ways they've done it is opened up other gaming. And so even in Montana where gaming isn't that big a deal, uh, you can drive into most gas stations and at least play a video game and maybe earn some some uh, earn <laughs> uh, win some money. Uh, and so they've opened up gaming, or they've said to the tribes, "If you're going to have this gaming compact, you have to make sure we get a share of the revenue." And then that's what this legislation is about. It's and and tribes rightfully, especially the ones that are successful, uh, they rightfully want to keep their hands on that goose. And what the state governments want to do is get their hands on the goose or at least some of the eggs that the goose is laying. Uh, 
I, as this happens, it will undermine the one thing that at least some tribes uh, back to the Southern Ute, even uh, with, with oil and gas, but certainly to the Cachada, to the Winnebago, those tribes really uh, stand to lose the same word, revenue from gaming that has allowed them to, to, uh, to begin to flourish, to begin to be sovereign. Okay, uh, Terry, we're beginning to get census data now. The 2020 census is rolling in, and uh, the last numbers I looked at, it shows about 9.7 million individuals in America who identify as Native Americans or an Alaska Native. Um, these stats come also from the Census Bureau. Uh, I mentioned one in five living on reservations, but there's more here. According to government data, Native Americans, Terry, consistently um, have among the lowest educational attainments in America. They have uh, some of the lowest per capita incomes. This is for those living on tribal lands, and life expectancies are also below normal. Uh, question, Terry, as we try to address these various pathologies, we look at the community itself. Where would you begin? in terms of improving the existence? Would you go for healthcare? Would you go for education? And how would you go for the vibrant economy? Just unpack those each one for me, one at a time. I'll come back to the word we've used a few times and just can't be used enough. And that is make tribes truly sovereign nations. They're called okay. sovereign nations. They don't have the power to tax. They don't have, they have in some cases, little power over, over the judiciary. Mm -hmm. uh, give them more of the kind of power that we think of uh, our cities as having, our counties as having, our states as having. Mm -hmm. and, and that will be the first step towards really uh, tribes lifting themselves out of, out of poverty. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, uh, the second component, and I think this has started, uh, is, is a better education. Uh, that hasn't come so much, heaven forbid, from tribal schools. Uh, as you may know, there's a huge uh, outcry today appropriately for what happened when, when children were literally ripped from their mother's arms to go off to tribal boarding schools so we could teach them to be good Christian yeoman farmers and the list goes on. Uh, but now tribal colleges exist all over uh, Indian country. Our hope is that the book we're talking about here uh, renewing indigenous economies will find uh, a place on the shelves of those colleges but that that's a start and then again just uh, giving tribes the ability to take the resources they have whether it's oil and gas whether it's gaming whether it's grazing land for that matter uh, if they can take or fishing rights <laughs> if they can take those resources and let them decide what they want to do with them they will, they, they'll sink or swim, but I think the evidence is on the swim side. They will take those revenues, invest them wisely as, as some of the tribes have done as described here, and, and will begin to, to really renew their economies as they existed in the past, based on property rights, based on rules of governance, uh, based on trade. Mm -hmm. And how do you keep young tribe members involved in the tribal existence, Terry? What comes to mind is what you hear when you go to the Midwest, to Iowa, Nebraska, the so-called brain drain. Uh, somebody grows up in one of those Midwestern states and they gravitate to a coastal state because they enjoy the society better, they see better opportunity there. So how do you keep people closer to home? Part of the way, I think, is uh, it can be found, uh, let me go back to the Cushada in Louisiana. They've earned huge revenues off of their gaming. They're, they're located halfway between Houston and New Orleans. Uh, and one of the things they've invested in is inculcating in the young people their culture. Uh, basket weaving out of, uh, of uh, pine straw was a, was a very important part of the Cushada culture. 
my wife and I have sitting on a shelf behind me here, uh, a beautiful Cushata basket. And they've, re, they've rekindled the interest in that, in that art form. And, and the people who, who learn to do it are making good money. These baskets sell for hundreds and thousands of do- dollars. They're, they're uh, renewing the interest in language. And so more and more students and young people speak Crow or speak Kushada. Right. And I think it's that, uh, that re, uh, rekindling in, these, in the young people a sense of what their community is. That, that will keep them closer to home. They will feel a, a, a bond to that community, but if they won't, they won't give up that better life if the better life outside is incomes twice as high and, and uh, 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 crime rates half as much and, and the list goes on of the things we all uh, would move for. Right, so the phrase I've noticed in your writing, Terry, you uh, <clears throat> like to use the phrase reviving traditional institutions. That, 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 I think, captures the renewing indigenous economies mm-hmm. Hoover component really well. Uh, I, we just had a conference at Hoover in uh, May uh, focusing on uh, Indian ecology, uh, something that most people think about in a very uh, uh, kind of romantic way, you know, that, that somehow they just revered the earth. And, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to say that that culture is an important part of, of good ecology, but right. they understood property rights and, and they, they managed their lands according to property rights. They had clam gardens in the Pacific Northwest that were owned by individual families. They moved huge boulders without the aid of a tractor. They brought in sand without the aid of a, of a barge and, and cultivated clams so that they could have more to eat and trade. Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, that sort of uh, re, reinvigoration of, of the ideas of property rights and then of governance structures. Uh, my co-author PJ Hill and I did a paper for this, this conference and I was astounded in the, doing the research at just the extent to which Native Americans had governance long before the European enlightenment taught them that they needed constitutions and laws. They had those and they made the the, their, their societies thrive, not just survive. I have a photograph I used in that presentation of a, of a large two to 300 teepee village. And I asked the audience in that, in that uh, workshop, what do you think it takes to manage a group of people living in close proximity if you don't have a tribal leader who is in charge, a mayor, if you will? And you look back through the historical records and you'll find they understood governance structures. And I, I think they'll resurrect governance structures condition uh, uh, complementary to their, their historical governance structures. And it will be that that will make them move forward. And how would you address the healthcare issue, Terry, which I imagine encompasses everything from prenatal care to alcoholism, mental health? What, what should be addressed there? Well, federalism is the first word that comes to my mind in, in thinking about that question. Uh, and federalism means getting it back into local hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, some tribes, again, have entered into uh, memorandums of agreement with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, allowing them to get the monies that the BIA would have spent and are in, investing them in their own 
forms of, of tribal health care. Right. And the more you do that, the closer it gets to home, the more likely it will it will fit with not just culture, but with the health needs. So the needs of somebody living in a rural Montana reservation obviously are going to be very different from the needs of someone living in a in, on a California reservation. And it's that kind of federalism that will allow experimentation. It will allow uh, accountability and ultimately will be part of the answer to their healthcare systems. Again, I come back though and note that the Southern youth have said, we'll take our revenues and invest right. them in healthcare. Okay, very good. So here we have a think tank in California in the West, which is looking at this issue. And let's talk now about the book. Give me a couple of recommendations out of the book, things that you think could help improve the indigenous economies. My favorite portion of the book, mostly because I'm an <laughs> historian, I was trained as an economic historian. Uh, and so history is always my passion. Uh, the first third of this book is about the history. And I just, I just love reading uh, the stories of, of, I mentioned the, the tribal uh, leader who, who managed that, that teepee village. Right. Uh, I love I, uh, my good friend, Bill Yellowtail, a member of the Crow tribe, put me on to a passage from Lewis and Clark in which they described b creating trade axes when they spent their first winter in the Mandan villages of North Dakota an important trading note of Native Americans. They traded those trade axes for horses and uh, food and other things. And then they started up river in the spring and, and they made it up and across the Rocky Mountains, thanks to their guide Sacagawea. Uh, and they came into the Nez Perce villages on the west side of the Rockies. And one of the trade axes was already there. That those kinds of stories are are just spine tingling to me, but that's my historian uh, blood, I guess. But I think they they that's that part of the story is it requires scholarship and heavens. It's not just this white guy's scholarship. There are several Native Americans who have been involved in our work at Hoover, who've, who've done similar studies. So I, I think that's that's to me the the really important part. The second part. And it doesn't take long to comprehend this part. It's sort of the other third of the book is what, what colonialism has done to reservations. And this comes back to those words competent and capable. Once you think that those words exist on the law books of the United States of America, you have to ask, is this any way for a free society to exist? And, and if we hold a segment of society, imagine using those words for any, any other minority in the United States today. If we hold people in that kind of bondage, or as one of my tribal leader friends called it, wrap them in white tape, but what can you expect but poverty? And then the third component is to, to really uh, offer tribes the, the the information that we've put together at the, in the Hoover Project, and uh, and offer our services if they can be of, of use to help them rediscover the governance structures that that once made them such a noble, uh, uh, vibrant uh, uh, people. Okay, so <clears throat> to make change, you have to have a plan, Terry, which means you have to think politically how to accomplish things in Washington and in state capitals. And here's the challenges I see it for Native American tribes. 
Uh, not a lot of large numbers. So unlike other minority votes, they don't necessarily shift elections. Well, maybe some bands of Indians could have changed Arizona in 2020, let's say, but they don't rank very high on the political clout meter. So you come up with a series of ideas. You produce white papers at the Hoover Institution. You produce this terrific book. You can give it to the tribal communities. You can give it to lawmakers in Washington. And then, Terry, there's something of an impasse, a question of who's going to act first, who's going to blink first. So do you think it's incumbent upon the tribes to go to Washington? and go to state capitals and try to make the change? Or should political leaders be going to the tribes and encouraging the tribes to, to come on board with change? I was once told that a philosopher is a person in search of truth and a cynic is one who has found it. And I'm as cynical as they come. Yes. The likelihood that it will come from the top down with politicians appointing secretaries of interior who are Native American and that that will make change is an impossibility in my mind. It won't it come that way. It, it will partially come from the bottom up with tribal leaders doing what, say, the Winnebago have done, as you pointed out. Uh, what the Winnebago have done is say, hey, let us do it our way. And some tribes will, will take the bull by the horns and do that. Right. But this gets to another component of the Renewing Indigenous Economies Project. And again, having been a long time professor, you won't be surprised that I think it'll be the young people. It'll be the young people who see hey, wait a minute, we are competent and capable. Let us do it our way. Uh, those are the people who come to the Hoover uh, uh, Indigenous uh, Student Seminar that we'll hold in August uh, for the second year. First one interrupted some by COVID. Mm -hmm. But we'll hold this conference with tribal young people who are going to universities from Stanford to Montana State. And they are the ones who will will take this information and take it or leave it. They will, they will be the ones who ultimately will go back to their tribes and say, we need to go back to what we had, build on that, make it integrate into modern societies and economies and thereby maintain our culture. And maybe the most important word I can come up with here is retain the dignity we deserve. And so I, I think the real hope comes from this indigenous economies student workshop that we'll do. Uh, and if we can contribute uh, anywhere that will really make a change, I have more hope than all the scholarship I might do or others. But right. without the scholarship, which is what Hoover is all about, without that scholarship, we don't have anything to say. So we will take what we've learned in the scholarship, give it to the Native American students and let them decide whether there is another path. So Terry, as we look at everything in this country through a left prism and a right prism, the left would say what tribes need are really great community organizers. They need Barack Obamas. And the right would say, no, you need entrepreneurs. You need just very skilled businessmen who have a vision and will build their community that way. Is it as simple as that, Terry? Or maybe do you need a hybrid of both somebody who is entrepreneurial, who knows how to build, but also knows how to organize and lead and inspire people? A fantastic question, one I, I need to give more thought to than the few seconds I just have. But I'd say on the, on the, the uh, leadership side, the, the Barack Obama side, if those leaders are truly leading in the direction of sovereignty, of self-control, of self-dignity, of, of getting control of their of judicial systems, of getting control of taxation, then I think that tribal leadership will be crucial to helping move forward. At the same time, as long as the entrepreneurs are entrepreneurial in the sense of revenues, not grants, 
uh, then I think they will play an incredibly important way. If the entrepreneurs are just simply, I know how to go to Washington and bring back more dollars to the reservation, then I don't think it will offer much, uh, much in the way of change. But it's the entrepreneurs who, who are running these tribal companies who are, are finding ways to reinvest tribal revenues in some cases, but who are, are managing the I own this place kind of properties, who are the entrepreneurs who will, who will be on that private side. So I think it takes a combination of both, but, it, but they both have to be special entrepreneurs or special leaders. Here's another thought, Terry. What about academia stepping up? Um, universities that have very good business schools, universities that have very good government schools. What about those universities forming partnerships with tribes and finding ways to maybe offer scholarships or just some sort of encouragement to get young tribe members to come to the universities and learn those skills they can take back to the reservation? I think that the place in universities where progress has been made has not been in any of the schools you described, Bill, but or, or really? but rather in law schools. Law schools. And uh, and that go, that cuts two ways. Some of it is, what was me? Uh, you know, we were treated poorly, and and we need recognition. We need uh, we need uh, compensation for the ills of of the past. Right. And I, I sympathize with all of that, but. Some law schools, let me use Arizona State as a, as a great example. Uh, the, the forward to the book was written by Stacy Leeds, a professor there and former tribal, uh, maybe still is a tribal judge. Uh, she's there. Uh, Bob Miller, a professor there who's attended several of our conferences, has a book called Reservation Capitalism. And, and Bob's book is, is much of what I've been talking about, much of what this project is about, the Hoover Project is about, and, and is a, a, an example of, of, he's Native American, the tribal judge. He understands tribal capitalism and what it could be. So, tribal, so uh, law schools are doing their part. Uh, uh, we, uh, the director of our student uh, seminar is a business professor at Gonzaga University, Daniel Stewart. And Dan is an entrepreneur in his own way, but he teaches uh, courses at, at Gonzaga Business School that are aimed at, at teaching kids about case studies of successful businesses, entrepreneurs. Uh, so there is, there is some stepping up to the plate. Uh, to our university, if I can call it that, Bill, yours and mine, Stanford, I think there's been too little of that stepping up to the plate. Some in the law school, none that I know of in the business school. Uh, and here's where I think Hoover steps in and, and, and is, is an important beacon at Stanford. Uh, wait, the Hoover Institution is worried about a segment of society that's the poorest, that has the worst health care. You guys care about those people, and you really think that the ideas defining a free society can help? Wow, maybe we should take note. And I think Hoover can be a, a, a guiding light at a place like Stanford. I hope we can. I think we are. Our director, Condoleezza Rice, to our considerable credit, Terry, cares about the American existence, plain and simple, not just the people living within 50 miles of the two coasts, but people living inland. So therefore, we've been very involved with her native state, Alabama, helping that state government, and this just exactly in her wheelhouse. So we have to run here in a couple minutes, Terry, but tell us what you're working on next, uh, uh, what's coming up next in terms of indigenous uh, economies. 
Well, most importantly, and, and uh, in the closest future is the indigenous student uh, uh, program that we'll run at Hoover in, in August. We intend to keep running full force with the scholarship we've been doing. We want to focus a little more on, on politics. You brought that up, Bill, on, on political economy, bring in more political scientists to talk about the importance of voting and governance structures. That'll be the next major step in our program, I think. And if I can, I Condi has been just a, a godsend to the project. She understands its importance to Hoover, and she certainly understands its importance to minorities. And so I think Condi is going to help us just raise the Hoover flag on renewing indigenous economies uh, and get us more and more attention. Well, Terry, on a personal note, I've always uh, been a bit more of your work. Uh, on a very personal note, you've been my neighbor on occasion when you venture into California for very short periods of time. And it's really just kind of an honor to treat to be friends with somebody who is truly a Westerner. Well, friendship is the greatest asset I think all of us can uh, cultivate. And uh, you're, you're part of my asset base. Well, thank you, Terry Anderson, for joining us today, visiting the Hoover Book Club. Congratulations again on this terrific publication. The book, again, Renewing Indigenous Economies, I hope I have a frame right for the camera. It's published by Hoover Press, which means you can get it by going to the Hoover Institution's website, which is hoover.org. And by the way, you'll also find Terry Anderson's biography on there and his latest work. You can also sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which will, every time Terry writes, you'll see it there. So for the Hoover Institution, I'm Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of the Hoover Book Club. Thanks for watching. Thank you.